Well, we, um, I forget now how we started yesterday. What were we talking about? Oh, growth. Well, I thought we'd start today talking about food because um, one of the highlights of weekends like this are the food, the amazing foods that we've already been enjoying. Um, and actually, I thought I'd start with a food joke because I feel like you can get away with jokes at the start of a sermon sort of um, on a weekend away. Perhaps we wouldn't do it on a Sunday. But here's a food joke. How does Moses make his coffee? Very good, Alfie. He brews it. You can ponder that one if you haven't worked it out yet. Uh, next, turn to the person next to you and tell each other what your favourite food is. And if you can, why? Why do you love that food? What's your favourite food and why? <laughs> Did anybody's neighbour have any quirky answers that you, uh, you want to share with us publicly? <laughs> Who had a weird answer? Anyone? Like gravy. gravy, really? Just <laughs> seriously? Wow. <laughs> There's a fine line. There's a fine line. I like it. No, it's good. Anyone else? Sorry. Say again. <laughs> what was it, Bex? Oh. Oh, nice. Oh, okay. I feel like you need to make it for us at some point, actually. To, that sounds really good. Um, if we'd have asked Jesus that question, what do we think he might have answered? I think he may have said this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there are lots of great physical foods in the world, including gravy. But according to Jesus, not one of them compares with this spiritual food with every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus, if you think about it, he must have enjoyed all manner of delicious foods as he uh, ate over the years with family and friends during his life on earth. More than that, he was the one who created every food, every flavor, every taste bud on our tongues, every synapse in our brains that fires off a signal of delight and pleasure when we enjoy good food. He, he is the ultimate expert on food. And according to him, the best food in all the world is the living word of God. Now listen to what he says to us. Listen to what God's word says to us in 1 Peter 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This, this is one of my favorite Bible verses. Uh, there's just, I think, so much enticement packed away uh, into these two verses. First of all, it tells us that the Lord is good. And it tells us that we've already tasted that goodness if we're Christians. Every saved sinner has tasted the Lord's incredible goodness. Uh, and then this verse, it describes God's word as being like pure spiritual milk. And it tells us that like newborn babies, we ought to crave this pure spiritual milk. If you've ever been around a newborn baby, you'll know what it means to say that a baby craves milk. Newborn babies literally only ever do, I think, three things, or four if you count wind and nappy filling, but here's the three main things. They all, they all surround milk. They just keep cycling through these over and over again. They're either crying for milk, drinking milk, or sleeping to digest their milk. Okay, so crying, drinking, sleeping, all sort of orbiting around this wonderful thing that is milk. Newborn babies most certainly love milk. It consumes their attention. It steers their desires. They crave their mother's milk. 
And so Peter says, Christians should be just like newborn babies craving the pure spiritual milk of God's words. And then finally in this verse, he tells us what the effect of this repeated cycle of craving and drinking and digesting will have on us. He tells us what the purpose of all this drinking is, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. God's word and our drinking from it is a supremely rich means of grace in our lives. We began last night to talk about these means of grace. God's word is one of the richest means of grace and it plays a fundamental role in our growth. So whether you consider yourself a physical foodie and you love watching food programs and and, um, cooking and all sorts or not, still every Christian is invited to be a spiritual foodie to dine at God's spiritual dinner table as often as we can. It's like an all-we-can-eat buffet to feast on his every word and buy it to grow up in our salvation. And so this morning, I want to answer two simple questions to do this together. Here's two questions of these. First of all, why is God's word a rich means of grace to help us grow? And secondly, how can we use it to grow? So here's that first one. Why is God's word a rich means of grace to help us grow. And to answer this first question, I want us to turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. If you've got a Bible with you or you've got an app or something, then do open 2 Timothy 3. We'll spend a little bit of time here. Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, bookshops today are filled with self-help books of every shape and size. They, they've become, for many years now, a kind of cultural phenomenon in our world. And what primarily draws people to them, I think, is the promise of being instructed on how to live well. People want to know how to live. They want to know how to grow in all sorts of ways. But what Paul makes clear here is that as Christians, we've got something far better than any self-help book that you might find on the shelf at Waterstone's. We've got something that offers not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And it's applicable, he says, to every single part of our lives in the most perfect and comprehensive way. Just have a look again, these verses. Look at how much better Paul says this book is. First of all, he says it's breathed out by God. Every page of the Bible is God's living, breathed out word. God wrote every page of this book and he wrote it for us. And God still speaks through every page of this book as well. He speaks today to you and me. If you've opened your Bible this morning already and you've read a bit of it, God has spoken to you and he's imparted grace to you through what you've read. Second, Paul says it's profitable. See that there, top line, verse 16? It's profitable. And that that word includes the idea of it being both completely sufficient and full of benefit. God has given us in his word all of the truth that we need for following after Jesus and for living a life of godliness. God's word is given to us not merely to help us survive or scrape through or get by. It's actually given to us to help us thrive in the Christian life. And then Paul goes on here, doesn't he, to break it down into four different ways that it's profitable. He says it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, the first of those two, teaching and reproof, they speak to what it can do for our minds. God's word is given to enlighten our minds, to 
deepen and grow our understanding of divine truth. It also, in doing that, it corrects us when we're in error, when our thinking goes astray. It directs us down the right path and it redirects us back onto the right path when we wander off from it. It is forever a light to our feet and a lamp to our path so that the word that drew us to Christ now leads us deeper into Christ as we seek to follow him. And the fact that it's profitable for teaching and reproof also means it can offer us wise counsel when we have decisions to make. Psalm 19 tells us it makes wise the simple. And maybe you don't feel like the simple. I feel like the simple. I'm a very simple man. And I love that God's word makes me wise, wise for decision making. It trains us to discern what would be most pleasing to the Lord at each and every turn and at each and every crossroads. It leads us away from those things that would otherwise lead us to death and destruction and into great peril. And it makes us skillful in facing the challenges of daily life. So think for a moment, where in your life right now do you need help for knowing how to interpret a situation? Where do you need help for decision-making to know what would be most pleasing to God? Where do you need wisdom to know how best to respond to opposition or to a particularly difficult trial? God invites us to come to his all-sufficient word to find all manner of help and direction wherever we might need it. Scripture is more than sufficient to help us think through the challenges of work and witness, of purity and priorities, of singleness and marriage, and so much more. The Bible helps us ride the many ups and downs of life so that we're led more and more by God's objective truth and less and less by our own subjective feelings. More and more by God's wisdom and less and less by the terribly polluted cauldron of ideas that surround us in the world. <clears throat> Psalm 119 verse 24 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsellors. God's word is our counsellor. It's our standard. It's our compass. It's our north star to guide us through the fog of this life's stormy night. And then back in verse 16, we see it's also profitable for something else, for correction and training for righteousness. And here, Paul, now, he's moving from what we think to what we do, to how we behave and how we act, how we grow. Because in his word, God calls us not just to think a certain way, but to live a certain way, to follow a particular path and to obey specific commands. His word helps us to grow, not just in our understanding, but in actual lived out godliness. So his word is, is profitable for that as well. It will help us to grow in godliness. It gives us assistance in our battle with sin. It gives us uh, resolve to stand firm and resist the devil. And then finally, Paul says, verse 17, it will equip us as well for every good works. It, it will help us to be increasingly fruitful in every good endeavor that God calls us to do. It will help us to grow in serving and encouraging Help us to grow in comforting, in teaching. Help us to be more generous and to witness. Help us to grow in showing mercy and helping us to be a better friend. And so much more. God's word helps us to grow in all these things. It's like a pre-packed backpack given to us when we set out on a hike. And uh, I think if you've ever had the experience of someone far more organized than you and someone far wiser than you, maybe it was 
your, your mum or your dad or your um, spouse or a friend and you're going out on a big day and they say, do you know what, let me pack your bag. Maybe they've seen the mess that your bag was the last time around and how you really wasn't anything in there. So they pack it. They know what they've got to put in. And so you know you've got this backpack full of the most um, perfect, hand-picked, useful resources. That's what God's word is to us. It's like the ultimate Swiss army knife with a tool for every task. God's word is one of the richest means of grace that he's given us. It is a superfood for our souls, full of the most incredible nutrients to help us grow. All of that, I hope, already has us eagerly anticipating my second question this morning. I've only got two questions this morning. Here's the second one. How can we use it to grow? How can we use it to grow? How does this help me? How should I approach it in order to benefit from it so richly? And at this point, I was wrestling with, you know, we could right now break it down into the real nitty-gritty, practical ways that we can take God's word in, in different ways that we can feast on it and savor it and squeeze the juices out of it. But then I thought, you know what, we can do some of that in our Q&A time. We can talk about more of those practical ways then. Uh, we've also got some incredibly helpful practical books on the bookstore, so if you'd like to, I can point you in the direction of some of those later as well. But for now, what I really want to do is hone in on the thing that all of those Bible reading techniques are really all about, what they're all together aiming to do. Our ultimate aim with regards to God's word should simply be this, that we set out every day to delight in what God has said. That's how we'll experience lasting growth through this means of grace, God's word, by making God's word our delight. And so to help us think about this, I couldn't think of a better place to go than Psalm 1. Uh, Psalm 1 has often been described as the gateway, the doorway into the Psalms. I don't think it's, it's no accident that it happens to be the first Psalm, Psalm 1. It tells us how to use the rest of the Psalms, and really it tells us how to use the rest of the Bible. So here is Psalm 1. You can turn to it in your Bible as well if you'd like to, but here's the first three verses. Here's what he writes. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So this psalm is about a particular person. It's about a blessed man or a blessed woman. And it's about what it is that makes that person blessed. And in fact, in the Hebrew, the word blessed is plural, which is a way of sort of intensifying it. As if the psalmist is saying to us, oh, the blessedness of this man, the blessedness of this woman. Or even more, it's a way of stressing how many blessings belong to this person. Oh, the blessedness is... is add s's don't need to make things plural so i've added like five all oh, the blessedness is is of this man this woman and then down in verse three the psalmist tells us more about what this blessedness looks like by presenting us with this picture of a tree the tr this tree is the perfect picture of stability and of fruitfulness and of growth no matter the seasons or the circumstances, whether it's a bitterly cold winter or a sweltering hot summer, no matter the external trials it goes through, this tree continues to flourish 
and to grow. And all because it's planted on a riverbank. All because its roots have access to a constant stream of life-giving water. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying strong trees or trees grow strong on riverbanks. Trees grow strong on riverbanks. Christians grow strong on the riverbank of God's word. Christians grow strong on the riverbank of God's word. When our lives are planted next to the streams of God's word, we won't wither, we won't perish, we'll be fruitful and we will grow. And then verse 2 tells us how to plant ourselves on that riverbank. Tells us what it means to push our roots down deeper and deeper into God's word. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So those two words there we're going to look at, delight and meditate. First of all, the blessed man, the blessed woman, the one who's planted like a tree by streams of water. Here's the secret of their blessedness. It begins with their delight being in the Bible. Their delight is in all that God says. This is the language of someone who is enthralled and enraptured by beauty. To delight in the Bible is to be captivated by its beauty, to treasure it and prize it, to love it, to praise it, to feast on it, to drink from it, like it's the most refreshing of all fountains. Now, I realise saying all of that, these, these big, descriptive, emotive, powerful words, it can seem like a tall order and a big ask to bring all of that to the Bible when we come to read it especially if you're struggling right now at the moment to bring much enthusiasm at all to reading God's words. Maybe you feel like my enthusiasm for feeding on the word right now, it's like a two out of 10. And you're telling me that the way to tackle that is to somehow turn up my enthusiasm to 10 out of 10. But that's not the right way to think about this. The delightfulness of the Bible is not something we ever have to bring to it. It is in itself inherently delightful. We are coming to something that is inherently delightful. And to explain what I mean, let me give you an example, first of all, from the natural world. The natural world around us is full of the most awesome majesty and beauty. It's inherently delightful because God has designed it to display something of his glory. It's called his natural revelation, display something of his glory. So take snowflakes, for instance, when you put a snowflake under a microscope, you discover that each one is the most incredible work of art. And you can go Google these. They're just incredible. You can't believe that this is what every snowflake looks like. Like a delicate glass sculpture, so small that the, the human eye really can't see it without help. And then we're told by scientists that every snowflake that's ever fallen in the history of creation is unique in its shape. Every single snowflake that has ever fallen is unique in its shape and design. Every snowflake that's ever fallen is inherently and uniquely delightful, whether, whether or not it gets seen by human eyes or not. And God crafted and designed every single one. Or take something much bigger, take the stars. Even here in our own Milky Way galaxy, there are some stars that are inconceivably big. One of them, I'm not sure I can pronounce its name, it's called Eta, Eta, Carine, does anyone, who's, someone, Alfie, do you like a bit of stargazing? Yeah. Have you heard of that one? Uh, no. 
It's <laughs> a good answer. So I will assume I said it right. Eta Carinae. It burns five million times brighter than our sun. Five million times brighter than our sun. I mean, can you even fathom how bright that is? What does that tell us? It tells us that God is capable of making things of the most exquisite beauty and brightness. Things that have in themselves a delightfulness that is beyond our wildest imagination. Things that are just of mind-blowing beauty and brilliance. Things that manifest and display something of his glory. And that's just what we get to discover in the natural revelation of the world around us. But this book, the Bible, is his special revelation, meaning that it is infinitely more beautiful than every snowflake that ever fell, infinitely brighter than every star in the galaxy. At this point, forget about the snowflakes and the stars. The Bible is the place where God's glory really shines. In this book, God reveals his will, his thoughts, his holy law and his perfect character. In here, he gives us his good commands and his promises, promises that lead not to death, but to life everlasting and full of glory. And in this book, we see Jesus. We see the glory and beauty of God positively exploding onto the pages of the Bible when Jesus walks onto those pages. The one of whom God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We may enjoy some stargazing and some snowflake hunting and investigating, but we won't find this level of glory looking through a telescope or we won't see this degree of glory looking down through a microscope. We get to find this level of glory in the Bible. We're invited to come and witness it in this somewhat ordinary looking book and witnessing that glory it changes us it transforms us it causes us to grow i think i've got this one here second corinthians 3 8 uh, should actually be 318 second corinthians 318 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another that's growth All this delight and growth, it awaits us when we open our Bibles and read. Its light is just waiting to burst forth from its pages before our very eyes, before our ears and our hearts each day. And so God, we have to be so clear on this, God doesn't say, bring your delight with you to my word. He says, no, come thirsty, come hungry, come delightless, and then delight yourself in my word. Come like a starving pilgrim, who's shown a dining table full of the most wholesome food and who's invited to come back each and every day to eat as much as you desire. Okay, finally, before we wrap up this morning, even though I said we'd leave the practicalities to the Q&A, I want to begin at least with one practicality, one practical way of us doing this. Um, How does the psalmist pursue delight in the pages of the Bible? Now, I expect he approached it in all sorts of ways. I'm sure he he read it for breadth and he studied it for depth. I'm sure he memorized portions of it. I'm sure he worked hard at applying it to his heart and life. But the one practice that gets mentioned here is that of meditation. On his law, he meditates day and night, Psalm 1. 
And I think the reason meditating on God's word, it gets a particular shout out in this psalm, is because it plays a vital role in, in causing our Bible delight to grow. Meditation is, is so important to growing our delight in the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson, he said this, the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Love that picture of meditation. It's like getting down in front of the fire and just putting out your hands and warming ourselves on the fire of God's word. To, to meditate on the word is to periodically stop just shoveling more and more logs on the fire and to instead warm ourselves at a nice log or two that's already been placed there that's already started to take light. The Bible's idea of meditation, then, is, is the very opposite of what many people understand meditation to be. It's, uh, I think we talked about this in life a few weeks ago. It's not the emptying and clearing of our minds that the psalmist is talking about here. No, he's talking about the filling of our minds with Bible, with God's Word. It's immersing our minds in what God has said. It's bathing our minds in his truth. Even talking to oneself to help it sink in. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for meditate is uh, onomatopoeic, you know, when a word sounds like what it is. So when you say the word meditate in Hebrew, it apparently sounds like a low voice uh, muttering or murmuring away to itself. These days, it's often only children that learn to read like that. And then as we get older, we move to silent reading. We kind of think that's more sophisticated. Uh, but back in the psalmist day, reading out loud in a low voice to yourself was the normal practice. And I have to say, if you haven't tried this much in your own Bible reading, let me encourage you to give it a go. It's quite striking what a difference it can make, especially if you're picking out a few choice verses to, to, to bathe in and warm your heart on, to just say it out loud to yourself, even under your breath. Just, just say it over. It's quite a powerful thing, and it is a God-given thing for us to do that. That is to meditate on his word. But whether we read it silently or aloud, meditation involves this active engagement with God's word. To meditate is to reflect on what God says and to knead it into our hearts like a baker kneads something into the dough. It is to chew on a particular truth until we actually begin to feel it nourishing our hearts. Maybe you have those common experiences where you read, your, you've got a set Bible reading that you're doing each day and you, you sit and you read and yeah, I got through it and I ticked the box, but I'm not sure has anything really happened. I don't feel any different. Meditation might be the key to just pick a little choice morsel and say, Lord, please help me now to just chew on this particular truth, this particular verse, this particular phrase. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to be nourished by this, that I feel your encouragement here as I do this. David Mathis, again in his book, Habits of Grace, he says this, meditation is feeding our minds on the words of God and digesting them slowly, savoring the texture, enjoying the juices, cherishing the flavor of such rich fare. Man does not live by bread alone, and meditation is slowly relishing the meal. And the psalmist also describes this man, this woman, this blessed person doing this day and night. This is not something to do sporadically or occasionally. It's to be regular and frequent. God's word is meant to be in our minds present in our thoughts repeatedly throughout the day. It's meant to, we're, we're kind of like um, spiritual, what do you call people that sew? I was going to say sewers. There must be a more technical name, isn't there? Seamstress, Seamstress yes. 
Oh, I like that. Yes. Okay. So it's to be a spiritual seamstress or tailor weaving the threads of God's word into our lives, into our daily routines, into the very fabric of our lives, shaping how we think about and face each new situation. Saturating our lives, fueling our affections, empowering us with a strong and steady supply of God's grace. I'm always telling our kids, you must drink more water. They, you know, they, I've got a headache or they're just lacking in energy. No, you've got to keep drinking, keep drinking, keep hydrating. Well, that's what we're to do with God's word. That will help us to keep on going and keep on growing. Well, like I say, we could talk about that and other ways to grow through scripture in our Q&A. But I just wanted to highlight that particular aspect of meditation because that's what psalm 1 does the bible really is this overflowing fountain of the most life-giving spiritual water it's a storehouse of sanctifying grace given to help us grow all throughout our christian lives and the place i wanted to end our time exploring it this morning is with the introduction that's found at the beginning of every gideon's bible have you ever been in a hotel or somewhere where there's a gideon's bible in the drawer that there is, I'm told, an introduction in the beginning of every one. And these Bibles are placed now in hotels and hospitals and schools and colleges and prisons all over the world. Here's what it says in that introduction. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, Paradise is restored. Heaven opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Let's pray.